Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. We've said Luke 6 for a while. We're in Luke 7 now. Um, Luke chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. If you want to get ahead in life, in our society, if you want to do well, there's a few things that are seen as important, things that you that, that will help you um, be successful, you might say. One of them is, is who you are. Who are you? Do you have the right last name? Do you have the right lineage? Are you a part maybe of different cultures we might think? Are you in the right caste? Are you in the right clan? Are you in the right tribe? Are you a part of the right section of society? Because that's how we know that you're going to be successful, because of who you are. I think about just recently the birth of, of Prince George, right? He's got the right last name. I mean, he's ready to go. He's set for life because he, of who he is, how he was born. So who you are is important. But some of us, we, we're not that fortunate. We don't have the right last name. We're not born well. So it's not just who you are. If you don't have that, then you can bank on who you know. Uh, who do you know? Uh, I think that the line to be little Prince George's best friend is probably pretty long because if you know him, well, you're in, you know. There's different people that we want to know. If you know this person, then, then things go well. They say that about jobs, right? It's not who you are, it's who you know. If you know the guy that's hiring, if you know the lady who's hiring, then you got the job. If you know someone uh, who has the right last name, even if you don't have it, if they have it and you know them and your friends, well, then you'll be successful. So who you are, who you know, maybe maybe you've got none of those. You know, you, you don't have the right last name and you don't know anyone important. Well, the only other thing that you can bank on is what you can do. What you can do. You know, maybe you don't have the right last name and you, and you don't know anyone, but, but through hard work, through ingenuity, through your own ability, you can, you can achieve the American dream. You can do everything. You can be successful and, and find that, that uh, life goes well because of what you are able to do. Uh, I mention those things because I think that sometimes this is how we think we come to God. This is how you approach Jesus. It's the, the way to get to Jesus, the way to receive blessing from Jesus, the way to be in favor with Jesus is based on who you are, who you know, and what you can do. I think this is a lot of religion. This is just a lot of the way that we think about how we come to God. It's based on who you are, who you know, and what you can do. And the question I want to ask this morning from this text is, what is Jesus looking for? What is Jesus looking for? What, what does he want? Another way to say that question based on this text is, what, what causes Jesus to marvel? What does he love? What is he excited about? What, what puts us in God's good graces, you might say? Is it who we are? Is it who we know? Is it what we can do? Are those things important to Jesus? I think we'll find out this morning as we look at this passage. But this is very important, isn't it? To know how we're supposed to approach God. Is it the same way that we approach everyone else in the world? Is it the same way to find success? To find favor with God? Is it the same? We need to know this. Not only just in, in coming to God, maybe even for salvation, but even as, as Christians, when we come to Christ, if we need help, if we need the kindness of God, do we come and say, this is who I am, this is who I know, and this is what I can do? And that's how God shows grace to us? This is an important question. What is Jesus looking for? 
Let's read this passage together, Luke 7, just verses 1 through 10. And as we read it, remember, this is this is true. This is something that truly happened. These are real individuals. Luke 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I to him a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The great story. It says in verse 1, after he had finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This is the link between what we've been studying and the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount. It says that after Jesus had finished this sermon, uh, he returned back to Capernaum, which was kind of the basis of his ministry at this time. And so he it's just letting us know that this is done, and he's, he's heading back into Capernaum. And then Luke sets the scene by introducing us to, to two people. Uh, they don't have uh, names. And actually, what's interesting, if you look at this passage, is these two men never actually have face-to-face contact with Jesus. They are at the center of the story, but Jesus and them never actually meet face-to-face. All the interaction is through intermediaries, through mediators. Very interesting. It says that the first person is a centurion. Verse 2, now a centurion. This was uh, a Roman kind of mid-level person in in the military. He was the head of, say, about 100 people. That's where that name comes from, centurion. About 100 soldiers were under him. Uh, He was not at the top rank but he wasn't at the bottom either. He's kind of somewhere in the middle. Uh, we know that he um, is not Jewish. He's part of the Roman occupying force there in uh, amongst in Israel at the time. And it says that uh, he, he's a he's a centurion. Now the other thing that we could say is that um, that he seems like he's pretty well off. That that he's not someone of no standing and he's not someone of no wealth. Because he has a servant, and that's the second person that we're introduced to. We see the the centurion, and then we see the centurion's servant. And we know a couple things about this servant. The first, uh, and probably the most important, is that he was sick. And this isn't just a headache. This isn't just the stomach flu. Uh, this is. It says he was um, at the point of death. So he is on his deathbed. He is about to die. So we see that this servant is at the point of death, and the second thing that we notice about him is that he is highly valued. He's highly valued by the centurion. This centurion 
loves this servant. We have to take note of that because it may have not always been the case that this person was um, was loved in these in these circumstances. But the centurion cares for the. It's not just that he values him and says this person adds value to my household. He's important to me because he does a lot of things, but that he actually cares for him. He he loves this man. And so because of that, we can imagine the scene. There's the centurion and the sick servant. And because the centurion cares so much about the servant, he is doing everything that he possibly can to see this servant made well. He spares no expense. He does anything that he can to see his servant made well. And it would seem at this point that that maybe all hope is lost, that they have tried everything. They've gone to every doctor that they know. They've tried every home remedy that they can come up with. They've done everything that they can. And now this man is about to die, and they are, in a sense, just waiting for the inevitable. It's a very hopeless situation, isn't it? They, they can't do anything about it. The centurion is just, he, he, he has position, and he has, he has wealth, and he has love for this man, but he, he can't do anything to help him. And then the turning point comes in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus. So suddenly the centurion gets some good, they've tried everything that they know to try, and then the centurion hears about Jesus. We don't know exactly what he heard, but we know at least that he heard that this man has power to heal, that he has power over demons, he has power over disease, and that he is this man who seems to be anointed by God that is going around and is doing good and is and is healing. And he says, we got to get a hold of this guy. we got to get him to come and to help this servant that I love. We need Jesus. I need Jesus. My servant needs Jesus. But then there seems to be a problem. We can note this because of the fact that he goes to elders of the Jews. And we would say this, that, that he sees sort of this block. He can't get to Jesus. Why? Because of who he is. Because of who he is. He doesn't have the right last name. He is not Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's come for his people, Israel. And and he is a centurion. He's, he's a Roman. He's part of the occupying force in Israel. Why would Jesus even think about coming to him? There's a humility to this man, too, that we see in this. But he, he says, I can't go to Jesus because... Because I am not of the right class. I am not of the right last name. I can't come to him because of who I am. And so he goes to the elders of the Jews. These would have been members of some a local council, you might say. And he goes to them, obviously has some sort of relationship with them, and he asks them to come. He says He tells these elders of the Jews to go to Jesus and ask Jesus to come and to heal his servant. So you can see the picture the centurion goes to these elders of the Jews and says, please, I need you to go and to speak to Jesus on my behalf. I can't go because of who I am. But you can go. You have the connections. You have the right last name. You are connected. And, and if you would go and speak to him, then maybe he'll come and, and he can help my servant. So if it's not who you are, then it's who you know, right? And he knows the right people. And so they come. To Jesus, it says in verse 4, you can imagine these elders of the Jews, they came to Jesus, and it says they pleaded with him earnestly. They pleaded with him 
not just that, not just that they pleaded with him, but they pleaded with him earnestly. Uh, there are times when I say to my wife, Andrea, if you have a second, could you give me a hand? And there are times when I say, Andrea, help! Now! <laughs> that second type of pleading is the kind of pleading that these Jews are coming to Jesus with. It's not, hey Jesus, if you're not busy, we're thinking maybe you could come and help this guy out. No, it's, we're pleading earnestly, Jesus, come now! And what do they say? Isn't this interesting? Middle of verse 4, they come to him and they say, He is worthy. I think that's the key phrase in that verse. He is worthy to have you do this for him. They come to Jesus and they say, You need to come and let us tell you why this man is worthy for you to come and to help him. Why? Two reasons. Verse 5. For number one, he loves our nation. He loves the Jewish people. He may not be Jewish, but he loves us. He cares for us. He may not be the right person. It's not who he is, but it's who he knows. And he has been good to us. We love him. And he loves us. And we know he loves us because, the second thing, he is the one who built us our synagogue. He doesn't just say he loves us. He, he shows it. He does good things. If it's not who you are or who you know, it's what you can do. And this man has done some great things. He built our synagogue. Now, maybe he... I don't think that means he literally built the synagogue. He probably donated maybe the vast majority of the funds or, or maybe the most of the funds to help have this synagogue built. This man obviously respects the Jews in the area. He's not a centurion that's mean-spirited. He's doing something good for them. And so they say, Jesus, this man is worthy. You need to come because not maybe he's not who he's supposed to be, but he knows us, he's good to us, and he's done good things. And so, Jesus, you need to come now. Isn't that sometimes how people approach Jesus? If they can't do it, if maybe they feel unworthy, which sometimes people don't, sometimes people say, well, you know, you look at this man and his humility, he says, I'm not worthy to go to Jesus, I'm going to send people to go instead of me. Some people say, well, Jesus should listen to me because of who I am. Um, and so they come to him just expecting, well, Jesus is going to listen to me because of who I am. But some people are humble enough to say, well, maybe not. And so they come to Jesus and they, they plead earnestly with him. And they say, I can't go, but I, I need someone to go in between, to be the, the in-between for me. I need, a, I need a mediator. I need someone religious. I need someone who knows Jesus, who's got the right connections. I need, I need a priest. I need, I need a pastor. Someone else has to speak to me, to, to Jesus on my behalf. This is so much of religion. Well, you can't come to Jesus, but I can go for you. And some people come and say, well, I've done all these good things, and that's why Jesus is going to listen to me. What's interesting to me, they, the Jews come and they say, this man is worthy. Jesus doesn't speak yet, does he? Jesus is not going to talk until verse 9. He says no words until verse 9. But, but in verse 6 it says he goes with them. Isn't that gracious of Jesus? I mean, these guys are way off in what they're saying. We're going to see that. that, that the way that they're coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, you need to... I mean, they're strong-arming him. They're almost guilting him into saying, you need to come, Jesus. Now, if I'm Jesus, if someone tries to guilt me into something, you know what I do? I, I say, well, then I'm not going to do it. If you're going to tell me I have to do it, then I don't want to do it. And Jesus, in his grace, says, 
You're telling me that I need to do this. Me, Son of God, God Himself in the flesh. You're telling me that I have to do this because this man is worthy of it? He doesn't say that, does he? What does he do? He goes with them. You know, I just thought about that. This is sort of a side note. I don't think it's the main point of the text. But at the same time, I think that sometimes people come to us and they have really poor theology. I mean, they may not understand everything about who God is. And in that moment, our role is not to say, well, let me correct you first. This man is in need. His servant is ready to die. He doesn't need a theology lesson at this point. Someone comes to me and says, I'm coming to you because you're a pastor and you have a special connection to God. And therefore, I want you to help me in this circumstance. Well, my role at that point isn't to give them a theology lesson about how they can come to Christ. I mean, I think that comes to a certain point. But at the same time, Jesus is just gracious. He's loving. Um, you can think about that as you will. But Jesus went with them. Verse 6, and then it says, when he was not far from the house. So they're, they're pretty close. They may have even been able to see the house at this point. I think that might be the case, or at least the people in the house could see Jesus coming. And maybe they said, hey, there's a group coming, and Jesus is with them. And the centurion doesn't know what to do. He's he, he says, I'm not. Jesus is coming to my house? Jesus can't come to my I'm not worthy for Jesus to come to my house. And so he had sent these these Jewish elders to go out, and they were bringing Jesus. And so Jesus was brought by this group. And as they're coming, as they're almost at the house, he says, he tells his friends, you guys got to go out there. And his friends go out and intercept this party where Jesus is. And what do his friends say? They say to him, on behalf of the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Look at that contrast, huh? Verse 4, he is worthy. What's his opinion of himself? Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy not only for you to, to, to come into my house, but even for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't, I didn't presume to come to you. Literally what that could mean is I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. There's a humility to this man, isn't there? He understands who he is. He understands his sinfulness. And then he says, but say the word. Just just say the word, Jesus. You, you don't have to come to my house. You don't have to touch my servant. You don't have to give me something to give to him. You just say the word. My, my daughter showed me the paper and it said that the, the kids this morning learned that Jesus is powerful. Is that right? This man knew that, that Jesus was powerful, that he has the power to do what he said he could do. I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And he explains, here's how I know this, Jesus. I'm a man set under authority. I'm this mid-level guy. I'm under authority, and I have soldiers under me. And if I say to one of my soldiers, go, he goes. And if I tell a soldier to come, he comes. And if I tell my servant, do this, he doesn't. I understand how this works, Jesus. And you have so much more power and authority than I do. You just say the word, and the sickness is gone. And I love this. What's Jesus' response? This is the first time Jesus speaks. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He is astonished. And he turns around to the crowd. And he looks at the crowd that's with him. And he says, listen guys, I tell you, not even in Israel, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This, this, 
What is Jesus impressed by? Is he impressed by who this guy is? Is he impressed by who he knows? Is he impressed by all the good things that he's done? No. What does Jesus react to? He reacts to this man's humble faith. What is Jesus looking for? He's looking for humble faith. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care who you know. He doesn't care what you've done. What he wants to know is, do you have humble faith? Why is Jesus so impressed by this faith? You know, there's only two times in Scripture that it says that Jesus marvels or is astonished. This is one of them. The other one is in Mark, the account of when Jesus goes to his hometown, to Nazareth. You know what he marvels at? He marvels at their unbelief, their lack of faith. Why? Well, because Jesus had grown up in the town. This is his hometown, the hometown boy. They had seen him in everything that he did, and yet they did not believe. And he marvels that having seen all of that, they don't believe. And what is he marveling at now? That this man, not even in Israel, not even a Jew who has grown up hearing the stories of old, he, he didn't know, about, he didn't grow up on the story of the Exodus. He didn't grow up on the stories of the prophets. He didn't hear all of these great things that God had done. And yet, he believes. He has this humble faith. And so Jesus says, I am amazed I've not seen faith like this even in Israel, where I should see this kind of faith. I haven't seen it. And this man who has no connection to any of that believes. He's astonished because of the, the, the just sort of the, the lineage that this man has and yet that he believes. I, I think also he's astonished at just his understanding of who Jesus is. His understanding of Jesus' authority and power, he sees, hey, this guy gets it. This guy knows who I am. This guy knows that, that I have power over all, and it doesn't have, it's not hocus pocus, it's not me touching people, it's not me giving some sort of thing, but I, I have the power just to do it. Isn't that amazing to think about? That Jesus can just heal. <laughs> he doesn't need anything else. I think sometimes, you know, that, that there is, there is false teaching all over the place, and so often it's, it's tied to things. You need someone to touch you. You need me to send you this. I need to say these specific words. You need to repeat this specific prayer. Put your hand on the television. That's how you'll be. If Jesus wants to heal, he just does it with the power of his word. That is all that it takes. And this guy gets it. And think about the humility of this. If, if I'm this guy, I'm thinking, Jesus is coming to my house. Instant celebrity. I'm the guy that talked to Jesus. And, and he was in my home. I fed him a meal. Let him come. He needs to be here. What does this guy say? He says, I don't even need him to come into my house. Just say the word, Jesus, and you can do it. Humble faith. Jesus is amazed by this man, and I think we should be amazed at his faith as well. He has this faith, and then what happens? When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. He's healed just by the word of Jesus. Uh, as I think about these, these categories that we think we need to have, who we are, what we, uh, uh, who we know, what we can do. We, we just get caught in this trap, don't we? That this is how we come to Jesus. 
that I need to have something in me. You know, my parents were Christians, and um, I've got a, a lineage of some kind. Don't you know who I am, God? I'm an American. <laughs> you know, I mean, just so many different things that we come up with that we say, this is why God should accept me because of of my ethnicity, because of my inherent worth. That's why God is going to accept me. I am worthy because of who I am. Or maybe who I know. I mean, I'm best friends with the pastor. I know professors at Southern Seminary. I, um, You know, this guy who wrote this book, I met him before. Um, so-and-so signed my Bible. Um, this guy prayed for, you know, we make connections with people that, that that's where, that's why God's going to accept me. Or, or, or religion says, you know, the priest prayed for me or did this for me and therefore I will now be accepted because of who I know. Or I've done all these good things and God will certainly see these good things that I've done. I mean, none of us have built a synagogue. <laughs> none of us have built a church necessarily. But that's what this guy has. It's what we've done. Is that where it's at? Jesus doesn't marvel at any of that. He doesn't say, oh, he knows you guys? Well, then, sure, let's go. He built a synagogue? Yeah, I'll be there right now. He deserves this. He's a centurion? Well, he's got some elevation in society. I'm going to go. And What's he surprised at? He's surprised that this man knows that it's not who he is, that he's, that he's humble, that he recognizes I am a nobody. In your sight, that that he recognizes that that he needs someone to go between him. Even just this idea that he needs a mediator is is humility, and that he doesn't even come and say, "Here's the things that I can do." But he says, "It's not. I understand your power, Jesus." And in the midst of that humble faith, that's where it comes. It's interesting, though. You know, those are, I think are the right categories to think about to a certain extent. Who you are, who you know, what you can do. It's just it's not about us. We understand who we are. We understand that we are sinners. <laughs> we understand that, that the, the humility of this man, that we cannot come to Jesus because of who we are, that we are born in sin, that, that even as David said, it, our mothers conceived us in sin, that we are born in sin, that Adam is our father. That's our lineage. That Adam is our father, and therefore we have a sin nature because of Adam. That's who we are. We understand, that, let's go to what we've done. We recognize that all the good deeds that we have done are filthy rags before Jesus. That we can do, 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 but we can never do enough to make him happy with us. But we need this mediator. We do need someone. But it's not the Jewish elders. It's not some religious person. Who is it? We need Jesus. Isn't that interesting that, that he looks for a mediator? That's the right thing to do. I need someone to go between me and Jesus. And Jesus says, you need someone to go between you and God. And guess what? That's who I am. That I came to be the mediator between God and man. You do need a go-between, and that's me. And let me tell you who I am. I have the lineage that you need. <laughs> I am the Son of God. As we read, I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I am uh, a son of Judah. I am uh, in the line of, of David. I am the son of God 
himself. I have the lineage. This is who I am, and that's what you need. It's not who you are, it's who I am. And only that, let's think about what I have done. I have come, and I have done everything that you could not. Building synagogues is nothing compared to keeping the whole law and never failing. And not only keeping the whole law, but then to die in our place for our sins, that that he came, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, so that we, through the righteousness of God, might might come to know him, that he has done everything. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus has done, and therefore he is our mediator. And as he, you think about these Jewish elders come and they say, he is worthy because of who he knows and what he's done. What does Jesus do? He comes to to the Father, if we have put our faith humbly in Him, if we have recognized our sinfulness, we recognize that we cannot do enough good things to come to Him. We come, we seek salvation, then He comes and He pleads, not our righteousness. He doesn't come and say, this person is worthy because of their last name. This person is worthy because of what they have done. This person is worthy because they have the right connections. He says, this person is worthy because of their faith. Because they have put their faith in me and because of what I have done. He doesn't plead our merits. What does he plead? His merits. They are worthy because I am worthy. Father, I come to you on their behalf. I am the mediator. Jesus comes to the Father on our behalf. We put our faith. And he says, they are now clean because of what I've done. They are now worthy because I have given them my righteousness. We come in humble faith. I think that's the message for us for salvation, first of all. That the way we come to God is not by who we are or what we've done. That we come in humble faith and we say, Jesus, I am nothing, I am nobody, I can do nothing to get to heaven. But would you be my mediator? Based on what you have done in keeping the whole law, based on what you have done in dying in my place, will you be my mediator? But I think that's how we continue in the Christian life, isn't it? We don't come to Jesus now and say, will you show me favor... This day, God, because of who I am, or because of what I've done, because of who I know, I think we fall into that trap. Our salvation, we know, is not that way, but then we fall into this trap of saying, well, God, I read my Bible this morning, so will you bless me because of that? Lord, I did these good works this week. I was kind to someone. I let I let that car go in front of me. So now will you be kind to me, God? Or we say, you know, I... I, I I talked to this person on the phone, and they have strong connection to you. I asked this person to pray for me. You know, the pastor prayed for me. I get that all the time. Well, you pray, Andy, you got some sort of special connection. because you. No, we all have the same connection. I think that's just... And we start to think about it. And we start to say, this is who I am. I am someone special, God. Aren't you glad that you chose me? No, our lives are continually humble faith that say, apart from Jesus, I do have no hope. If Jesus is not my mediator, then I have no leg to stand on. And it's not what I have done, but in kindness. And you know, I think if we come with that humble faith, then the result is the same as the result of verse 10, that Jesus will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think in a moment. He has the power to do it. Do we believe that he has the power to do it? He is powerful. That should be so freeing to us, shouldn't it? We don't come to God because of who we are or what we've done or who we know. And we don't come to God now because of who we are or who we know or what we've done. We come in one sense because of who we know. Because we know Christ. We know Christ. We come in His name, in His power, 
in what he has done, based on who he is and what he has done. So don't fall into the trap. Maybe to get a job you need to know someone. Or you got to have the right name. Or you got to be able to work hard. But to come to Jesus, you don't need to be someone special. Or you don't need to know the right people. Or you don't need to have done all the right things. To come to Jesus, you need to recognize that you are a sinner. To continually do that every day. To say, God, I am not worthy of your grace. And then to see that he is our mediator. That he has done everything that we could not do.